What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Round the X and Voyager, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear much more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest found Bitcoin in 2012 and never looked back. While he's actually trained as a pharmacist, Alex Saunders is a key eye for markets and is not afraid to share his opinions. He runs a very popular YouTube channel called Nuggets News and calls himself, quote, the one-stop shop for cryptocurrency information and education. He covers just about everything from the housing market to global economies, cryptocurrencies, government policies, and more. Now, we've been trying to connect for a while, so I'm really excited to finally welcome Alex Saunders to the show. Alex, thank you for being here, buddy. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Yeah, so I, I just realized this po- podcast is a classic setup for a joke. Like a, a pharmacist and a DJ walk into a bar and start talking about macroeconomics and finance. I don't really yeah. know where the joke goes, but uh, I'm sure that uh, you experience the same sort of thing uh, when you put your thoughts out there where people say, hey, you're just a pharmacist or you're just a DJ, you're just a musician. So it's always interesting to talk to people who have sort of diverse backgrounds, but then are into cryptocurrency and, and finance, of course. Oh, mate, it's so controversial with COVID, being a health professional. And I actually walked away from the health industry because there's a lot about it I don't like. But the other one that I get all the time is, you know, pharmacist, Bitcoin in 2012, you know, dodgy selling drugs on the dark web or what were you doing back then? (laughs) I never even thought about that angle. Yeah. They probably think that you were uh, making a living on Silk Road. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, obviously everyone has their own story as to how they found out about crypto, where they came from, how they transitioned into it. And we just touched on it, obviously that you started as a pharmacist. Can you sort of tell us about your journey? For sure. So like a lot of people, I dabbled in investing and lost money to begin with. My parents had given me some shares for my 21st birthday, which was the GFC as luck would have it. So I asked them, we've lost 50% of our money. They'd lost a lot more than me, obviously. And we had a sort of money manager or whatever you call it. And I said, are we paying someone to lose 50% of our money? And they said, yeah, that's how it works. These guys say that no one can see it coming. And I thought, you know, that's an easier job than the weatherman. I reckon I can do a better job than that than lose 50% of my money. So I went down that rabbit hole and just wanted to learn about how the world of investing and finance works. As most people know, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole. And because I'd always had a love for, I guess, maths and science, I just found options and derivatives so interesting. And the Black-Scholes model, how it all, I guess, clicks together. I just really loved that you could understand that and then kept going down that rabbit hole. And in 2012, read an article on Zero Hedge about Bitcoin. And for me, it just clicked straight away because I'd done a lot of traveling and I'd seen firsthand the exchange rates. And particularly with Australia, the banks here just charge you all sorts of fees, even higher than the other bad you know, countries that you hear about. So look, that all made sense to me, just a digital world, a digital currency, and there's a lot of debt globally that was that was kind of the the thesis i had in my head but as you know since then it's just completely changed like negative interest rates qe infinity i think the case is stronger now than it was when it was ten dollars 
I don't think the case has ever been stronger than it is now. I mean, whether uh, it comes out ahead or not, uh, I think this is the first time, and I've talked about this on a number of podcasts on Twitter, but this is the first time that I really think your average Joe is starting to see the cracks in uh, how the world works and how global economies work and the, the, the dollar and fiat system. I mean, if ever there was a time for Bitcoin to shine, this is the time when all eyes should be on it. Yeah. And some of the stuff that I've concentrated on more lately is the world of DeFi and the role that stable coins are going to play in disrupting the US dollar and the whole global financial system. So, I mean, I was kind of interested and dabbled in the alts, got burnt like a lot of people, uh, learned those lessons. And I didn't get into Ethereum in the ICO because I sort of had everything else as a shit coin in my mind. Uh, then I took the time to learn about it once it kept popping up in 2016 and really went down that rabbit hole. So I, I, I'm a believer. I'm not a maximalist. I do believe that Bitcoin is obviously the blue chip and it's very important. That is a, a money play, whereas Ethereum is a technology play. They're very different. I, I hate the tribalism. Um, that's sort of the way I think about it. So talk about your interest in DeFi. I, I know that you've... Uh as you said, gone deep down that rabbit hole. It's something of extreme interest to you. First of all, I mean, in case there are people listening, if you can just even offer the basics of what it is and, and why, you, why you like it so much and what you see the value is moving forward. Yeah, so I actually don't like the word DeFi. Decentralized finance is what it's um, setting out to achieve, a more decentralized model. But I like the word open finance where it's just trying to be inclusive for everyone. So these days we've got widespread smartphone adoption through a lot of developing countries and they've got basic internet connections. So the world's really changed in the past 10 years. So now anyone can download a phone app, uh, um, a number of crypto wallets these days that let you get into that ecosystem straight away. If you're a, a blogger in Africa, you can start earning cryptocurrency and stable coins in countries that have got these hyperinflating currencies. So it's opening up the world of finance to anyone where you don't need banks and like a lot of these countries skip the infrastructure of say phone lines and have gone straight to mobile. I think they're going to skip the infrastructure of banking and go straight to these mobile decentralized web three kind of apps where so much is possible. And that's what I talk about a lot. Some of these things are very exciting and already happening and people aren't aware of them at all. And that's one aspect of it. Whereas the whole other side of this is how it is going to disrupt the US dollar uh, hegemony and the Fed and policymakers, I don't think they really understand that and see how big it is, this huge wave that I see coming. And why do you think that is? Or do you think that maybe they actually do see it and so they've sort of remained hush and have a certain level of fear for it? I mean, obviously, like not speaking DeFi specifically, but I was on you know recently the Goldman Sachs call um, and heard them basically just shoo Bitcoin off to the side as a non-event when you know that in the past they've uh, invested in block blockchain-related companies and are probably accumulating themselves. So, yeah, I think it's the way that those in charge always, I guess, don't talk favorably about gold. It's it's the outlet, the the better store of value. So that's I guess what they talk down. Bitcoin, because if they're going to do all this money printing, it's just mathematically more scarce. So over time, it should perform well. Whereas the Ethereum and the DeFi aspect is more the, the technology play, 
being able to get a yield on your stable coins that you hold, for example, being able to send these payments cross borders. That's why stable coins have taken off. And the reason I'm so bullish on it is just the better technology normally wins out, particularly when there's no barriers to entry. So anyone can send a stable coin, anyone can get their hands on US dollars through this DeFi or open finance system just by downloading that app and, and clicking a couple of buttons. Whereas if that person is trying to get US dollars in these different countries, they can't or open up a business bank account if they're you know, a tattoo parlor or even a crypto business in Australia, it's still hard to get banking. So there's just all these reasons that you're familiar with and so are your listeners, I'm sure, that crypto and that adoption is just going to really pick up because of the user-friendliness, the seamless on-ramps to become your own bank. But the global demand for US dollars at the moment with the number of countries that have got all this US dollar-denominated debt and the Fed are having to open up these swap lines the dollar's rising. You've heard about this this milkshake theory where everyone's sucking up all the QE that gets printed in the US and that's why we don't see inflation. Right, tremendous think, demand for the dollar, obviously. Yeah, and I just see these other alternate payment rails, whether it's Tether, USDC, or the DAI stablecoin, it is just so much better and open technology. And we've gone from uh, 1 billion to 10 billion in very quick time. I think we could go to a hundred billion or past the market caps of Ethereum and Bitcoin while we have this huge global demand for dollars and stability when we have all this uncertainty and you know markets crashing or whatnot, but just replacing and eating the market share of all these hundred of world currencies that are just losing value and people have got this other option for the first time in history. And then the stage after that is the moving and understanding Bitcoin, which is a better store of value than the US dollar and all fiat currencies that still are going to get printed and devalued. It's interesting that you mentioned to me that you had a whole thesis on, on stable coins, which you call digital thick shake, I believe, correct? And is that, is that basically it or does it go deeper than that? Oh, it goes deeper than that. I think the whole... Opening up the world of money is one thing, but opening up the world of data and information is completely another thing. So just this week, we've seen Trump come out and talk about shutting down social media sites. I think Google Drive pulled files from someone's personal drive. So yeah, I actually, uh, I interviewed uh, James Tedera the other day, who is the hydroxychloroquine doctor who had the Google Drive document. Uh, he, he will actually, my podcast with him will be out very soon. So, or maybe oh, actually awesome. will already be out by the time we've uh, released this. So yes, I'm well aware of that. Exactly. That like all, all the YouTubers that are getting censored. So that whole censorship, the open nature of what is needed at the moment, that is just coming a stronger and stronger investment thesis every day. So having a way to move value and information and data around the world in a censorship resistant fashion all sort of clicks into this DeFi narrative as well as having a stable money for these hundreds of countries out there because compared to the system we've got at the moment, it's like trying to suck a thick shake to a, a tiny straw and there's not even enough straws you know, there's a dozen straws where the Fed have got swap lines at the moment, but there's probably a hundred countries that need US dollars. And as we go into a recession or a depression, uh, velocity of money slows down. The relationship with China, who's the biggest trade partner, breaks down. They're getting less US dollars. They're creating all these, um, you know, new deals and Iran paying in gold and this, that and the other. So everything that's moving away from the US dollar is actually bad for that 
US dollar milkshake theory and it's more favorable for the the DeFi, the digital uh, thick shake theory, I call it, because it's just so much better than that legacy financial system. It's interesting. You touched earlier on, you know, Ethereum being a technology play and Bitcoin being a money play. I actually read an interesting thread. I believe it was by Ari Paul on Twitter recently, where he was basically saying, nobody's talking about this, but the existence of stable coins, the, the rise of stable coins, as you mentioned, the, the, I mean, the market cap of them increasing. Does that to you, he claimed that it did remove the argument, basically destroy the argument of Bitcoin as money? Because, for example, if you want to buy a cup of coffee, you don't want to worry about the, the currency that you're buying your cup of coffee with changing value in the time that you're making that transaction. Or if you're paying someone for a service, they don't necessarily want to wait you know, two hours for it, the transaction while there's volatility and the price changes. And, and that's solved by stable, stable coins. So you did say, obviously, that Bitcoin is money. But is that going to be replaced, at least that theory? I think it comes in, in stages like I was hinting at before. So what Ari's talking about is very, very true in America or throughout Europe or in Australia, but try telling that to people in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, you know, Argentina, that the list of countries is just growing by the day that is starting to experience steeper and steeper inflation towards mm -hmm. hyperinflation. So to them, they're not really worried about that. Yes, stable coins are good, but Bitcoin is still a better currency to them but it definitely fills that void of cutting out volatility. So the stable coins is kind of like this mid, uh, this middle step, this middle ground, because I see the path to Bitcoin is at least a trillion dollars, multi-trillion dollar asset class and becoming a global currency of sorts. And until we get there, we're probably going to have one or two of these big boom bust cycles where we go up a thousand percent and down 80%. And that's the volatility that we have to put up with because you don't just go on a straight line to a trillion dollars or a multi-trillion dollar market cap. We go through that human emotion cycle that comes up on the charts, the Wall Street cheat sheet. Yeah. And that's the way I think about it. So eventually Bitcoin volatility will settle down and only be maybe 20% a year. And then it's very similar to most right. currencies. I mean, we were almost there in 2017, if you're talking about trillion, at least people were talking about it. And effectively, we saw that retrace that you're talking about already. So um, it's not an unfamiliar pattern. And I think that's a good way to project the future. Um, so let's talk about banks and DeFi. Do you think that... Uh, you know, conventional banks will evolve and adapt to DeFi and new technologies? Or do you think that they're going to wither away? There's still going to be some functions, but it's, it's not just a bank trend. It's a global trend that software is eating the world. And any, any job that someone does that's repetitive or that you can program, you know, we can build that into a lot of what's happening in these different protocols. So yes, I do think a lot of their functions are going to be taken away and some of the most profitable functions for the banks are the most basic things. So, you know, if I try to send money to you in America, that international transfer fee, that huge spread, um, getting money out of an ATM, all these things where they just take a little clip, it's actually taking value, um, economic value out of the economy because they're charging people for doing basically nothing. So removing all those little clips, um, is a strain and holding back the economy. There'd be more money going towards better things once those functions of banks are removed. But yeah, some other things are, you know, complicated, maybe mortgage application processes. But even that, you can say, well, what is the 10 criteria they look at? 
And if you can plug that in, and there's already these DeFi apps that uh, will tell you what's your income and you can sort of look at it on a chart. It'll tell you like what money per hour you are earning coming in and what are your expenses going out. And you can see if you're going forward or backwards. So all sorts of interesting possibilities come about once you can see your entire financial or economic profile in front of you in an app. Interesting. So how do national digital currencies uh, play their role in this? I mean, do you think that the, you know, digital yuan that, that China's digital currency could unseat the dollar and that actually could be negative for, for DeFi because effectively, or for stable coins, because effectively countries are doing it themselves. The way I think about it is it's a step forward for central banks or banks and local currencies that are basically already digital, you know, cash use is less and less. They're trying to phase out cash. And I think that is to force everyone into negative interest rates. It's also to surveil everything that people are doing, particularly in China. So in China and a lot of these other Asian countries, the smartphone use, the QR codes, all these apps, you know, the WeChats, they're fantastic already. That is almost entirely digital payments. So switching over to a central bank, they call it a cryptocurrency, but it's really just a digital ledger where they can monitor everything you're doing. So that's not really a huge progress step forward in technology whereas other countries yes it actually might be progress but it's all just this this middle step because it doesn't have any of the true features of you know bitcoin or decentralized monies so i think it's just all a bit of a distraction these banks and politicians probably think it's it's fantastic and it's going to be the the market leader i don't understand why anyone would want a chinese yuan stablecoin you know think about these emerging markets where they're trying to put them into debt. Uh, You've seen, you know, the princes of the yen, the IMF, the World Bank, these sort of stories. Of course. You ask any of these countries or these citizens, most of them are going to want the dollar. And that goes back to my digital thick shake theory where tethers exploded, USDC and these, I guess, more legitimate, more transparent ones have taken off. I think DAI and decentralized models are just going to continue to grow and expand. So I just don't understand why anyone would want a, stable coin of these different currencies like even in australia and our followers they just they want to be in us dollar stable coins at the moment they don't really have an interest in being in an aussie dollar stable coin so yeah china have got high hopes i think it's just all a distraction the chinese are the ones that love tether the most yeah which makes sense let's talk about tether obviously you can't find a more uh, controversial subject probably in the cryptocurrency community what are your thoughts on tether obviously for a very long time people believe that it wasn't backed that they were printing it endlessly much like qe infinity just to you know move to exchanges and, and pump bitcoin now they continue printing it but it seems like the demand is actually there so what are your thoughts on tether in general the fud in the past and its role moving forward this is such an interesting thing to talk about. So I actually fall in the camp that Tether is fully backed. And so do I, be- by the way. <laughs> okay, cool. Being in the space since so early on, these stories have come up every year that Tether's not backed. I've got friends who are shareholders in Bitfinex and Tether and they get paid out their dividends. These are huge, huge companies, hundreds of millions of dollars. Look at the cycles that crypto have, has gone through and these whales that take profits. There is no way if you're running fractional reserves, you'd be able to survive these 80 or 90% swings with people taking profits and going in and out. The problems arise because of the interfacing with the traditional finance system. So we don't know if someone in 
you know, Jamaica wants to take profits and trying to get US dollars into their bank. And we face all those problems where the bank says, crypto, Bitcoin, you know, freeze that transaction. And that is the problem that they face trying to get money out to all these different places around the globe and where they had those funds seized last year. And that actually did take it back to a, what was it? 77% back to whatever they admitted to being at the time. And that's when they did the right thing. And they said, look, we're going to raise more capital. We're going to patch that hole and ultimately we'll pay it back and get back to one to one. So I don't really believe those those kind of rumors that it's just this printer, I think it's very clear. And there's, um, you know, people like Jesse at Kraken who are very trustworthy saying that we've seen huge demand, people pouring in dollars and they go from their bank account into a stable coin, normally into Tether. That's where you see 150 million of Tether being printed. It's not coming out of thin air. It's coming from that real world demand. Where this gets more interesting and people don't often take this next step is that if Tether has got, a hundred million in a bank, when you or I make a deposit, we know how fractional reserves work. So in theory, they most banks might keep say 10%. So everyone's arguing whether or not it's backed one for one, but even if it is backed one for one on paper or in the account, that actual bank, if people try to you know, withdraw that money, you know where I'm going with this. And more recently, the Fed changed the reserve requirements down to zero. Uh, to zero, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you can, you can, Debate all you want whether or not, you know, there's fractional holdings of gold, whether they have enough. Fort Knox has actually got the gold there. All the derivatives in Wall Street and whatnot. But even if all these stable coins are backed one for one, are there those reserves in the bank? And that's where we have Neil, is it Cascari, come out on 60 Minutes and say, come in, take out all the money you want. We're going to print infinite amounts of dollars if you actually ever want to withdraw. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) It's almost like uh, watching some sort of like dystopian future movie when you watch the interviews with with Kudlow and I mean Powell and the Fed. I mean, these guys literally have just come out flat open and said, "We will print as much as we need to print, no matter what." We have not even started to you know fire. We we have plenty of dry powder. There's there's no end to what we can do. I mean, how absurd is that? It's uh, such a confidence game and it's the same in every country. So people obviously don't follow closely what's happening in Australia, but they were almost the same as uh, Powell's backflip where he was talking about raising rates and being on a a set course and not worried about markets. Whereas now I think literally the other night he said, I watched the stock market closely. Like they've completely changed their tune. And when people go at them on Twitter saying they've got no idea what they're talking about, um, I interview economists like Steve Keane who have been saying this for 10 years you know, their models are wrong. They don't understand, well, their models don't actually take into account banks, debt or money. It's all about, you know, the velocity and um, uh, credit availability is what they talk about as the driver. So they just basically don't understand money. That's why they don't see these crashes coming. And now that they're at the zero bound and they've tried this QE, they've got to try new things. And that's where it's becoming very clear that the two tools that they're telling everyone that work and that they're in control well, they are out of ammo. So they've got to print infinite amounts of money to patch whatever holes come about, whether it's the repo market, the junk bond market, which I think is a whole nother kettle of fish if you want to talk about that. But these are all just patches and they're trying to keep the ship afloat and keep it going as long as it can. But really it just, you know, there's no answer here. It doesn't end well. 
Uh, I guess that, that leads to a question, question, and again, I come back to Goldman Sachs because they addressed it recently on their call, but it seems that actually your average person thinks that inflation is the biggest risk, but I think that the governments themselves are actually probably more worried about deflation in, in, in the short term than they are about in, inflation because they think that they can control inflation, but deflationary environment would be much more damaging. Oh yeah, completely agree. If you picture that pot of money as the economy, if deflation takes hold and baby boomers sell their shares and their house and they downgrade and they spend less and they, if people pay down their debts, that pot of money is shrinking. So let's say that a trillion dollars of debt is actually paid down. That means the fed now has to print another trillion dollars just to keep the amount of money in the economy, the same size if the velocity of money stays the same. So if velocity of money picks up and you and I are doing twice as much business together, obviously we can pay down our debts quicker. But what we've seen on the charts is the velocity of money just come to a grinding halt. So deflation at a time when people are retiring and the demographic cliff, the pension funds, it's just this, this storm of deflation. That's why I think they're going to have to start printing in tens of trillions instead of you know, one trillion, two trillion here or there to patch these holes. So yeah, they're definitely more worried about deflation because you just can't pay off these global debts once the economy starts to slow down. Um, and then inflation, they're not even worried about that. They're saying we're going to let it run hot if we yeah, get it. Yeah, they don't care. They think they can get back to 2% no matter what happens, basically. It's just mathematics. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm into meditation and mindfulness and, I just sort of take the ultimate zoom out big picture view and you think we're on on a finite planet. We just mathematically, we can't keep aiming for 6% growth in China or two to 3% growth in every other planet. You come to this, this bound where there's not physically enough room for populations or food or, you know, we've got a lot of energy if we can start capturing the sun, obviously, and other things, but there are physical restraints to what we can continue to grow. And no one talks about sustainable. Everything is about growth. And that's what the debt-based financial system is based on. So it has to actually continue to expand. Even if it goes sideways, that starts the deflationary snowball where debt can't be repaid. Right, well, that leads us to the, the the present situation, obviously. And, you know, I, I speak generally about the American economy because it's what I, I understand better. And obviously, the whole world is uh, watching the United States. And we hear these terms, V-shaped recovery, U-shaped recovery, W-shaped recovery. I mean, what's your prediction for, for the economy moving forward with this attempted, I call it an attempted reopening because I don't think anybody can predict how successful it will be, but you know, moving forward after COVID or if it comes back, what are you thinking happens with the world economy, the American economy, Australian economy? So we were lucky that we might've heard about this a little bit more than the average person because Australia and China have such a tight relationship. And we did a video, I think in January talking about this could put Australia in recession when there was only cases in China because of how dependent we are for trade and also a lot of students and the universities, the education um, come over here to Australia as well as real estate investors. And then the the commodities is the big side of it. So look, all those reasons were going to put Australia in a recession if they slowed down. And then we started looking in the specifics of how the virus worked and, you know, the R naught and a few of those characteristics. And to me, the alarm bells were going off and people were saying, you know, you're a fear monger. And my message was that this has the potential to be something pretty bad, a lot worse than what people are saying at the time when Trump and the Australian prime minister were saying, you know, this is just a, 
just a cold or a flu. And you were talking really, about it in January, correct? Yeah. And I, I seem f- to recall you were actually talking about it at the end of January. Yeah. And that was when there was sort of, you know, on my radar and doing these videos. But when I actually got really worried about it was uh, end of February and I did a video 48 hours before the market started crashing called, you know, the world has gone mad. So it was very clear that this was spreading. It was nasty. Stock markets were shrugging it off. Uh, and I just couldn't believe it. And then I think it was 48 hours later that decline started and people started to realize that, yeah, this is bad. Now I've kind of changed my message. I'm a little bit more hopeful. I think the data we were getting was maybe making it seem a little bit worse than what it was, but we still are learning more and more. So we might open back up and everyone wears masks and washes their hands that appears to have worked pretty well in some of these countries that have had it before and they've been trained on how to deal with it. I can assure you that will not happen in the United States. Roundthex.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is take all your small purchases and round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that spare change into any of over 30 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can view various exchange balances all in one dashboard and round up into different assets all at the same time, and they do all this without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Go to roundlyx.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. And Australia, no one is, you know, no one is wearing those masks or that here either. So that's what I'm kind of waiting to see now. What are the numbers going to look like as we start to reopen? And if we keep having these rebounds, it's a very slow process because of that incubation period that is around 14 days, let's call it. If you find out that there's been a big outbreak at a supermarket and everyone is just basically treating it like pre-COVID, there can be thousands of people that have it and then they've been in contact with thousands of people and then you've got to go back into lockdown for another four weeks. So that's what we're waiting to see and I just don't think the world goes back to normal, even if it's just more work yeah. from home, less commercial real estate. Things have changed and the world was levered up and priced perfectly. So at the moment, the markets have been just flooded with liquidity and you've got to just treat that as a parallel universe, the real economy and the stock market. So look, there's that joke, uh, new high 4th of July, that could happen at a time when there's what, 40 million unemployed. Oh, and by July, that would be 50 or 60. Yeah. <laughs> In the United States alone, of course. And it's interesting in talking about unemployment. I mean, we have 40 million people in the United States uh, as of now um, who have lost their jobs. And, you know, you keep hearing they're temporary, they're going to get their jobs back. But what I'm seeing is, I mean, you see Coinbase, companies like Twitter are all moving 
already to remote fully. Um, and I think that a lot of companies have in the last two to three months learned to operate lean and those jobs just are not going to be there. Even if everything opened up again tomorrow, which it won't, I still think most of those people won't have jobs because the bosses and companies have learned to operate without them. I, yeah, I agree. It's just a matter of what percent this this happens because it is happening. Some of the biggest companies have already made this move. And that also has repercussions for things like uh, mental health that I'm really passionate about as well. So look, I work from home and I've got the, a family now, a baby, you know, the dog, but it is very, very different from being in that pharmacy environment, seeing hundreds of people a day and talking to people. And if you're like, I'm lucky down in Tasmania, I can go for a walk in the park every day and you know, that sort of thing. Other people are trapped in their high rise apartment. Maybe yeah. you're not allowed to go outside, Nightmare. even these co concrete jungles. And now you're working alone for the stressful 40, 50 hour a week job not getting any vitamin D like, yeah, these things can have other repercussions that are all, I guess, net negatives for the individual and for the economy. And you touched on commercial real estate uh, in one of your previous comments. If companies like Twitter and Coinbase, and we're going to see a number of huge companies, you know, stop filling office spaces. So first, obviously you lose the, the office space, but then you lose all the ancillary businesses that are surrounding those. I mean, if you're in a city like New York, there are restaurants that exist only because there's a single office building next door to them and everybody there eats lunch. Right. And then the transit systems and all these things. So I see just like this ripple effect through, through so many communities, but I, I know that you've had thoughts specifically on real estate. How do you think that all this will affect the real estate market moving forward? Yeah. And that that's all true and it creates opportunities. So if you're the, the little, um, what do you guys call them in America? Like the little stall carts, Oh yeah, like uh, the the carts in the street that like sell uh, sell food, like a food truck or a food, food cart or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if they're flexible, they see this coming. They can adapt their model and maybe get on Uber Eats or move to the, a suburb rather than being in the city. So, look, it creates opportunities. But I definitely agree that the office job is one thing. People being able to work via Zoom or Slack. But technology itself was already coming for a lot of industries and that's very deflationary as well. So I picture right. this world where virtual reality, um, augmented reality, the surgeon at home goes into his room, he's got those uh, you know, hands or the sensors and he can perform heart surgery from home. So right, I just the think Da Vinci robot, right? I mean, they do it in person. I'm sure they're going to find a way to do that from home. That makes sense. And that's also a lot more hygienic in a world that's possibly got COVID or other things that we're worried about. Um, super bugs in hospitals is a problem. So this actually solves other, other issues as well. And that's where I just see the world going, um, living more and more of these digital lives where you can perform more real life tasks. Well, how about residential real estate? Uh, Look, Australia's got a bubble. I don't know how much you know about the Australian housing bubble. I think everywhere kind of has a bubble, but uh, I'm not that well versed on the Australian bubble. I'm sorry to say. So in Australia, the average house price in Sydney is, I think it's back past a million dollars, and in Melbourne, maybe eight nine hundred thousand dollars. Where I live down in Tasmania, which is less than an hour's flight away, is three hundred four hundred thousand dollars. So look, there's huge premiums in the the two capitals. And the percent of, you know, annual income to house price is, you know, 10 and 
historically it's been around two or three. So these things are pretty out of control. Um, we've got negative gearing, which means that if you have a house and your mortgage is a thousand dollars a month, but you can only rent it out for 900, you actually get to deduct that difference, the hundred dollars off your taxable income for the year. So a lot of a lot of people have, they don't even care if they lose money. Basically that's the story. So it's just like this Ponzi scheme where even if you lose, you win and people have 10 properties. There's these classes on, Hey, get a credit card, lever up, um, get 20 Airbnbs. We're seeing people, the uh, landlord that didn't know that their tenant wasn't just a, a nice guy with a nine to five job. He was actually s- subleasing it out uh, with his 20 Airbnb. So this is all kind of collapsing. And at the moment it's being caught by the system and the banks kicking the can down the road six months and the government stepping into some degree. So look, that all has to sort of play out around September when these programs uh, end. So there's different areas that are well priced but anywhere near these big cities is just, I think, massively overvalued for residential and commercial. You can have a better um, quality of life, fresh air, a bit of a backyard, an hour or two hours in these suburbs if you can work from distance. And that's what's going to, I think, be more valuable, particularly to our generation. So do you think that we're going to see a mass exodus out of big cities? Because also when, when people used to leave a big city for a job, even if they were within the same company, say you were moving from New York City to Austin, Texas, your salary would sort of drop uh, you know, mm. commensurate to where you were, were living. Now we actually have this environment where theoretically, if you're whole company is working at home, your salary shouldn't change no matter where you live. So in addition to all the things that you just mentioned, and obviously reasons that people would leave the city, real estate being too expensive, getting that green space. Now you also have a situation where people can actually save a ton more money by leaving. So do you think that we will see a mass exodus out of big cities? I I mean, I think water finds its level eventually with that happy medium, but to the same degree, we've got to think about internationally. So you can now get an architect in Southeast Asia for $20 an hour rather than paying an Aussie architect $100 an hour. So all these wages, they have to find this new equilibrium. And I just think a lot of countries that have been exporting out, you know, cheap labor and the way that we're trying to bring jobs back home, it's a very interesting time to be alive. And to certain industries, you can't replace those jobs and require certain skills. And that's what people need to think about, making themselves valuable and having side hustles uh, that type of thing. So I do think that um, just millennials are going to put way more of a premium on not putting 40% of their wage towards a mortgage. They'd rather put 20% and go on a holiday every year or spend more money on on things and time with their family, less time commuting. Um, yeah, it depends on the individual, but maybe socializing, the gatherings, there's always going to be reasons to go to a big city. I think the, as you touched on millennials, I think it was the Washington Post just had an article that called them the unluckiest generation in history. Um, you know, the oldest millennials actually basically experienced 9-11 and came into the job market in the you know economic downturn slowly after. Then they experienced the Great Recession and now they're dealing with COVID and the youngest, younger millennials obviously still have the latter too. I mean, pretty yeah. tough, tough, tough time if you're in your 20s. I really think, again, this is zooming out my big picture thoughts on how the world has kind of fooled itself. So all we've done is pulled forward this demand by going into debt. So you talk to my grandpa 
um, I actually really want to get him on and do an episode about how attitudes towards uh, money is changing. But he's uh, he's actually battling cancer at the moment and he's not well enough to do it. But um, sorry to hear that. No, that's all right. Um, so I think that his generation, when I talk to him, he's saying, you know, we used to earn $10 a week, but a house would only cost $800. So you'd save up for a few years. If you had to get a mortgage, you'd be able to pay it off within a few years as well. So these days, you know, people would never dream of saving up to buy a TV or a car or anything. So people graduate with huge student debt. It's not as bad in Australia as it is in America, but student debt, car loan debt, uh, after pay to, you know, buy your TV and all your household goods and pay later. Then you've got your credit card debt. Again, speaking of DeFi, none of these uh, banks and credit or debt that people are in really talk to each other. That's kind of changing a little bit now with cross checks, but it's very easy for people to continue to pile on and have 10 credit cards if they're of all course. small. Um, so yeah, I just see that we've borrowed from the future, but we've kind of got to that point where, well, how much more can you borrow? You know, that million dollar house that takes 30 years to pay off and you've got the car and you've got this, that, and the other, your student loan that's taking all these years to pay off compared to a generation ago where the, the dad, you know, just overgeneralizing here, you know, the dad is the sole breadwinner of the house. Mum is stay at home. You can afford to have three kids on that dad's wage and live a really comfy lifestyle. Now we've got two average wages are still not enough to afford an average house in a lot of these cities. So we've dropped interest rates from 18% down to zero. Obviously that pushes up prices. People go into more debt, they can service that. So unless you're telling me that interest rates go down another 18% to minus 18% and four people are going to pay off a mortgage, you know, I just can't see where people make these assumptions that housing is going to keep doubling every 10 years or the stock market and bonds are going to keep going up at the same rate. It's just been the, the luckiest or the best time in history for people that own these assets or are able to benefit from this, but it's kind of time to pay the piper. My first savings account, I'm in my 40s. So it was in the 1980s. I can't remember the specific number, but it earned about 13 or 14% interest. You know, a, a millennial who puts money into a bank account now would be lucky to gain 1% interest. Companies used to match your 401k. That's sort of gone. I mean, there's no way to even save your money and be guaranteed that it will grow like there was in, in, in previous generations as well. Yeah, I think the stat is there was 20 workers for everyone um, putting into a pension, a, you know, a generation or two ago. And in another 10 years or 20 years, it's going to be like one-to-one. So mathematically, there's just no way. And there's already pensions in the US that you hear about uh, going bust. Um, Which is a huge issue that people are not really touching on, but that's, I guess, a topic for another day. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had another thought there. Oh, I was just going to mention again. So I'm not sure if you saw... Um, check it out if you haven't, uh, the Argent wallet. So A-R-G-N-T, mm-hmm. that's a DeFi wallet that came out the other day that's got all the, the apps and the lending all in one friendly interface. So you can download these apps or similar apps and have the, your savings in it and earn 8% or whatever the DeFi yield is at the time. The other day, I think it was, you know, when, when 0x, for example, or there's a coin that's hot for trading, it was up to 30%. So these millennials that are tech savvy, they don't have to know that it's even crypto. They can just say, do you hear about this app where you can get 10% on your savings instead of zero in the bank? And it's just this gradual move into this world that is just better and easier to use and gives the power back to the individual rather than the bank. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier that you touched on, um, which was we were talking about censorship and, and YouTube censorship. There's been this huge wave of uh, crypto influencers, of course, being removed from YouTube. Um, you obviously, your, your, core, your core audience, I'm assuming, is on YouTube. How much fear do you have about being removed and, and how much would that affect you? I guess your bottom line, uh, your business. And, and I guess, how do you protect yourself from that? How do you eliminate the counterparty risk of being someone in this space who's dependent on a social media platform? Yeah. So good question. So this all came to affect us on Christmas day. We were one of the channels that got taken down and I've been doing it for years and never had a strike. We don't really do the clickbait videos and don't really promote the margin platforms as much as others. I I personally actually like FTX because they've got a lot of cool products that I use and options and other things. But, uh, you know, we don't encourage people to trade 100x altcoins like a few of those other YouTube channels. So, look, we thought that we were one of the better channels um, that were going to be safe. And then that YouTube algorithm just went crazy and started knocking anyone off and giving them on Christmas morning, I woke up to a first warning strike and thought, oh, what's going on there? And after Christmas lunch, I had a second strike Uh, and as you know, three and you're gone. So I was really worried, jumped on Twitter and that one went viral. And thankfully a few days later, YouTube got everyone's situation, I guess, remedied, but they couldn't explain what had happened other than to say, I think there's an algo and we're working from home. It's harder to fix the good from the bad. It does seem like there's been another wave of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another wave to do with COVID and a few other things at the moment. Um, So the remedy for us, uh, we've got 85,000 subscribers on YouTube, but we do plo- uh, post all our content to a number of platforms like library, which is the decentralized one. Right, so of course. you know that can never be taken down. Look, we've got the podcast, we've got our premium services, which are our main source of revenue. So look, there would be ways around it, but certainly, yeah, as you know, YouTube and, and these sites are great for getting new traffic, but in an ideal world that, that use case for decentralized platforms is slowly getting stronger and stronger. Like if you had asked how many people know about library a year ago, you know, even in the crypto community, no one had really heard of them. Whereas now people are really aware that, Oh yeah, if YouTube senses a video, I'll go watch it on library. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's still very scary when you've built that huge audience and you've spent a good portion of your life building it to know that it could be taken away at any moment. I mean, it's, it's hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just terrifying. Where does something like, uh, going back to the conversation, we obviously talked about national currencies and and, uh, stable coins. Where does something like Libra fall in? Obviously, it was all the talk and it's sort of that that talk has diminished. We've seen some sort of companies pulling out. But I mean, a a company-based currency, whether Facebook is the best one to do it, I doubt. But like, you know, why wouldn't Amazon come out with a similar thing? Uh, What do you think the place is for something like Libra? Well, I mean, this payment space is just hotted up. So PayPal was ahead of its time, I guess, trying to make these new payment rails. But now we've got Revolut, TransferWise, Venmo, and then you've got, you know, Apple Pay coming out. I think Google Card. So all these guys want to get into the banking space because it's just so profitable to do very little. But if you actually think about what Facebook tried to do, they probably trod on too many toes and they really just threw the... Uh, politicians into a spin because they don't understand 
money or finance very well to begin with, let alone when Facebook say, you know, we're creating this basket that's a global currency and it's going to include these different currencies. So that was probably a little bit too ambitious and now they've backtracked. Uh, but at the end of the day, is it really that much different to USDC, for example, that's set up in America? They've done all the checks and balances. They're just a private company that have issued a US dollar stablecoin. So that's why I think Facebook have gone down that path now. But this is all just that middle ground, that distraction where people are going to use it for payments. It's going to get integrated into your Facebook or other apps. But compared to the reasons and the thesis, it's just another on-ramp. It's just building capital that's one step closer to going into Bitcoin and going, oh, there's a currency with a fixed supply and there's a currency that they're printing trillions more of each year. You know, number go up, orange coin go up, this other coin is always worth a dollar. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any specific projects that you're looking at in the crypto space that are under the radar that uh, you would like people to know more about? Uh, I mean, anything, I think DeFi is really popular at the moment, but it's it's that sort of cycle where I get excited when I research something, it's got a good thesis around it and it fits into the ecosystem where all these other projects are kind of plugging into each other and then you see the venture capital guys come on board and then you know that coinbase is probably going to list it so you know how this cycle back in 2017 was like hot ice hot ico and then what exchange is it on that's kind of i know it's probably a bad thing but look over investment is kind of needed in, in this space i do believe that's where i think a lot of money is going to flow uh, grayscale keep coming out with these these products. So look, I just tell people, make sure you've got money in exposure in Bitcoin and ETH. They're the blue chips in my mind. And and then the top 10, the large cap coins is where the most capital is going to flow. And then if you're going to pick a small cap coin, my rule is half a percent or 1% of your portfolio because of how risky they are. Smart. And if, you pick, if you're picking the right thing and you're picking it early, even in the past two years, we've had a number of coins go a thousand percent because if you know you're getting it early rather than chasing that FOMO and that's when you can take out your initial investment or whatnot. But um, they're so risky. You're going to have coins that are going to go to zero. Um, what I like at the moment, uh, look, I hate shilling individual stuff, but I just see the world of trading. So the decentralized derivatives, the decentralized options, I just love the way that that's coming together with the say decentralized hedge funds, the automated trading strategies like sets protocol. Mm -hmm. And then a project called Nexus mutual is the one of the insurance um, backstops for all these DeFi smart contracts that kept getting hacked. So look, I see those sort of ideas and think that's got potential. Um, but there's a number of those doing that out there. Uh, yeah, we do a monthly Ethereum update because there's just so much happening. And um, we actually got, contacted by a, like a documentary film producer that want to do an Ethereum series because uh, everyone understands the Bitcoin thesis now. It's kind of mainstream, but I think Ethereum and everything underneath it is still a bit misunderstood. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think that people uh, understand the nuance at all, the differentiation between them. They, they all see that it is Bitcoin and everything else probably if they even understand that much. You just touched on DeFi hacks Obviously, BlockFi made the news recently because uh, one of you know one of their employees was sim swapped, and someone got into the back end and got some of their information. How how much is security an issue for all of these future plans and all, all this potential that you see for DeFi and, and stable coins? Yeah, huge, huge problem. As I guess 
general internet security is these days because hacking techniques have got so much better. So the solutions, I guess, that I think are going to happen are a combination of, you know, you've got your retina scanner, your fingerprint scanner. The next step is maybe the geolocation. So your wallet or your data will only be unlocked if you're in your home or if you're at the doctor's surgery, it'll only access your medical data there. Or maybe it's a multi-sig to your health records where you need the doctor, another sort of permission, and then your personal key. So there's these layers that are going to seamlessly work in the backgrounds where, where we can make security better. And then some people are never going to be confident about the custody of their Bitcoin or their investment because people have never had to custody their own shares. And that's where uh, insurance and custody, you know, BitGo's of the world, Coinbase's and Gemini's are making these acquisitions where some people just want to invest. And that's one thing that we've noticed now a couple of weeks ago, every second day we're getting phone calls for people that want to invest a hundred grand, 200 grand and putting them in touch with brokers. And they, they can do the same as a basically a gold or silver vault where they're keeping ledgers there for people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest barriers to entry in general for crypto institutionally and individually is that people don't know what to do with it once they get it. They don't necessarily trust the exchange, but they certainly don't want to be their own bank and worry about losing their keys and putting it on a hardware wallet. I still think that that's a, a pretty significant problem for mainstream adoption. Oh yeah, it's terrible. I mean, like I had to try and help someone set up a Legend Nano uh, S the other day and you forget that it's a pretty painful, clunky process compared to how easy, you know, how easy you think it would be. We've got all these brilliant devs and all these awesome apps and yet why is that still so hard to set up? And how terrible is it if you actually have an issue or the ledger fails or something like that? You have to understand your private keys. I think that a lot of people set them up but there's no practice for when it goes wrong. You know, yeah. uh, people yeah. don't even, I think most people who buy a ledger think that, you know, their Bitcoin is physically on the ledger, like cash in a wallet, you know, they don't understand the blockchain itself or, or even how it works. So I just think, you know, that it's gotta be far more simple, or as you said, that insurance has to sort of become the norm. So it removes that fear at least. And that's one problem we're trying to solve. So we've got all free education and resources on our website and we're built, we want to build like a Google where you type what you need to solve. Like, you know, my ledger's done this and it comes up with the answer for you. And we've got oh, dozens of units already, but we, we're sort of making notes and we can see the questions and themes that are coming in. Then the team go to work on uh, building written guides and modules and then integrating my videos or tutorials if we've already done them. And just simple things, as you say, like your private key is on your hardware wallet, not your Bitcoins. And those 12 words, you can actually plug those in and restore your wallet Elsewhere. to any other compatible wallet. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't think people understand that. So speaking of security, you like me are one of like uni unicorns, a really rare person who's actually yourself in the crypto community. You're not, <laughs> you're not an avatar or anonymous. But I can tell you from personal experience that that comes with a tremendous amount of risk. You know, I've been specifically targeted for hacks and, and SIM swaps. Have you experienced anything like that? And do you have certain fears or reservations as a result of being yourself in this space? Uh, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I, I might not have done it if I lived in the middle of Melbourne or Sydney. Um, I mean, I'm quite happy in Tassie and we're a bit out of the way here and um, I mean, I keep a low profile generally and I mean, even from 2017 till now, I've kind of changed 
my attitude towards things and a little bit more cautious about this, that, and the other. Uh, would I go out in public and do big meetups for everyone anymore? You know, I'm not sure about that. But, um, yeah, we did have a hack in quite a nasty uh, trial early on and that was probably a good learning lesson just to get everything, you know, polished, ship shape with your password managers and your security because, um, yeah, people – Law of large numbers, once you get to that 100,000 number, it's just you're going to have people out there that don't like you and are nasty people or lost money on one thing you said. So something that I'm aware of, but try – look, I'm, I mean, I plan on stepping away at some point in the next cycle or so, cutting back the workload, um, doing other things. But I, we're always trying to keep people happy. As I said, hopefully we're not doing anything that's ripping people off for our own benefit or any of that other stuff where I think people – that's where you get in trouble. If you're actually you know, ripping people off or yeah, not respecting your audience. Like I have a rule that whatever we talk about, would I use it personally? And of would course, I, like, I have my, the same my, rule. My, yeah. my parents use it. So yeah. Yeah. I have the exact same rule. So what can we look forward to from you guys in the future? And you just talked about perhaps stepping back. So what else would you potentially be doing? Um, so I'll give you a bit of an exclusive. We've got a like a Nuggets News app that we've been building for a very long time now that's uh, very close. Um, for our premium services, which range from just a newsletter through to our community that's full of uh, everyone from traders to investors to 80-year-olds, and um, that's been probably our most successful venture there. And we want to really expand that and have it more user-friendly um, just that app and that interface. So that's why we sort of want to be the one-stop shop for all things crypto. Um, after that, I just love talking about anything that needs to be discussed. That's interesting. Kind of like, you know, the Joe Rogan or people are just so inquisitive these days. I'm sure you've covered other topics as well. And yeah. that's the, the censorship or why isn't these super interesting things on TV or why can't we have an open discussion about COVID or the healthcare system with my pharmacy background? You know, we did an interview with a, a doctor who's a whistleblower who was a diabetic surgeon who was having to cut off people's fingers because they've got such bad diabetes. Um, and then he'd put his patients in hospital and they'd get fed Coke and ice cream. And he's like, you can't feed my diabetic patients this. And he came up against big food or big sugar uh, and he lost his license and he fought it and won. So, look, I just think there's so many of these type of stories where the world can be made a better place by shining light on these certain issues and they're the issues that people want to hear about. So you effectively want to do the same thing but with a uh, wider <laughs> wider net of topics. And I, I think ultimately there's a lot of overlap to the decentralization. Like if blockchains are all about transparency really and censorship resistance. So if, for example, all these drug studies and data on a, a blockchain or some of these businesses and, you know, people selling our data, once all these models change and maybe they're on a blockchain, maybe they're not, but I don't think I'll, there's a lot of overlap with everything happening in the crypto world. Even if it's just the style of libertarian cypherpunks, the people that want to fight back against the system and make the world a better place, I think they're always kind of interested in these similar topics. That makes sense. So where can everybody keep up with you after this? Uh, so nuggetsnews.com.au or I'm Alex Saunders on Twitter and Nuggets News on YouTube. Well, man, thank you so much. That was really enlightening. We touched on a lot of things that I had uh, had no idea that we would, we would get into. I think that uh, people are going to 
really, really enjoy that. So I know it's funny, uh, the, the global world, I'm ending my day and I believe you're beginning yours. So I am. <laughs> hope yeah. That, uh, hope that you have a good one today. Thanks, man. I've really enjoyed it. Well done on your podcast. I know you're going really well with your newsletter and that as well. And I have to return the favor and uh, have you on my show. We'll definitely do that, man. Thanks again. That's dope. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.